first films of one of the most amazing rocket experiments to date. At White Sands, New Mexico, Air Force scientists prepare to launch a rocket into upper space manned by two white mice and Albert the monkey. The purpose? To study their reactions to travel at altitudes and speeds never attained by human beings. Every precaution is taken to assure their return, safe and sound, from their spectacular journey into space to the point where the force of gravity measures exactly zero. The final step, inserting a tube of oxygen. Where this rocket is headed, there's no air outside. Zero hour approaches. They're off at 2,000 miles an hour. Special equipment broadcasts Albert's physical reactions back to the test station. Defense Department films show the rocket 38 miles up. Inside the missile, an automatic camera shows the mice running on the sides of their cage. There's no gravity here, no up or down. Notice the floating ball. A parachute opens to ease the rocket and its precious cargo to a gentle landing. Anxious scientists rush to the scene and discover the animal crew has weathered the flight safely. It's Albert's moment of triumph. He's the world's first space cadet. Hi, my name is Jonathan Pezza, and welcome to the third episode of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take a journey one page at a time through the literary underground of pulp fiction. The clip you just heard is from 1952, the same year as today's story. Humanity's race for the stars was in its earliest infancy. The world's first successfully launched satellite wouldn't happen for another five years, and NASA didn't even exist yet. But America's love affair with space was already in full swing. That year, Time Magazine featured a cover of a spaceship that was surprisingly not too far off look-wise from what would eventually be the lunar lander. And Collier's Magazine published a series of articles titled, Man Will Conquer Space Soon! Exclamation point, including Warner Von Braun's first vision on how to reach Mars. Obviously, Mars is a goal that we as a species are still very much working towards in 2020. But back in 1952, minds were racing. And of course, where better to present imaginative visions of humanity's future in space than the pulps? Today's story, Hero's Way, was first published in the November 1952 issue of Space Science Fiction and was written by Judith Merrill. Merrill is a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. In her career, she published four original novels and at least 31 short stories. She was a writer, editor, and trailblazer who actively fought for science fiction's acceptance in the mainstream. At the time this story was written, scientists didn't know if humans could survive in space or what the effects of interstellar radiation would be on the human body. I chose Hero's Way because instead of just focusing on the adventure or the technological hurdles, it hit a very close and very specific mark about the sociology and politics of spaceflight, specifically the dangers of celebrity that would eventually accompany being one of America's first astronauts. So without further ado, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. One hundred and forty-seven graduates this time. Seven score and seven left over. Twelve dozen and three more. Go on, find another way to count it. Count the hairs off your head this year, 
or the ones that turn gray. Count the cost of books and paper and lab equipment. Count their ages and their families and their average incomes and all the other statistics the Office of Space Information gathers up so neatly. Count them any way you want. Only don't count how many years they have left to live, how long they'll be healthy, how many trips they'll make. Don't count the kids they may never have or the families they'll leave behind. Don't even try to count the pretty picture hats out there in the front row because you'll find yourself trying to count tears instead. The tears of the girls sitting under the pretty hats that haven't been shed yet. You can't count tomorrow's tears. No, but you can count those 147 men one by one, slow as death and sad as sickness. You can count each one as he comes up looking odd and eager in his new fitted grays with the stripes on the sleeve. You can hand him his diploma and watch the pile on the table go down slowly slowly, much too slowly, and before the next set of greys comes up one inch shorter than the last and red-topped instead of black, you have too much time to remember that there's a man inside that uniform. A man you know. A man you've watched and taught and brooded over for five years in the academy. How do you count a human life? Do you give it a number? One? Or 147? According to grades and ranks acquired in five years' time? All you can do is keep on handing out diplomas and doom until you reach the bottom of the pile and the table is empty. And that last gray uniform, blonde topped, six feet one inches, age 23, has filed past. The fourth commencement was over at Spaceways, the official part at least. Even in four years, customs grow up though. And the TV stayed with it for another hour while the boys kissed the girls and hugged their mothers and shook their father's hands, and while they all sang space songs around the rocket memorial. Then the TV cut off and switched back to commercial shows. Technicians supervised the removal of the big scanners on the campus. Mothers and fathers went home to make preparation for the evening's parties. Girlfriends, one by one, reluctantly took leave to go back to their hotels and dress for the evening. Then, 147 men in fitted new greys, with stripes on their sleeves and diplomas in their hands, filed into the chapel for a final farewell from the chief. Alex Hader stood behind the rostrum and waited, erect as befitted his brigadier's rank, patient as was required of his headmastership. He watched them come in and found it impossible to think of them any longer as a class, a group, a quantitative category. He knew them each of them, almost too well, and this would be the last chance to speak to them before they made, each for himself, a final and terrible decision. At last they were all there, standing stiffly at attention next to their chairs, the doors firmly closed to the outside world. All right, boys, Alex Hader said, at ease. There was a murmur from the group, of surprise, of curiosity, but they all still stood. Hader smiled. They'd been expecting something ceremonious, official, brisk. At ease, he repeated. Sit down. You're gonna be here for a while. Get yourselves comfortable. Take your jackets off or light a cigarette or anything you feel like. The shouting's all over now. Nobody's watching you or me. And uh, temporarily, at least, I don't even outrank you.
you've got your diploma, you're out of the academy, and you don't get to sign up for service until chapel is over. They began to settle down. The room hummed and rustled with whispers and adjustments. You never even thought of that, did you? Well, think of it now. You're free, every one of you. You've got just about exactly 20 minutes before you walk out of here, and that's all the time you've got to decide what you want to do with the rest of your lives. I know, it probably never even occurred to you that you'd have 20 minutes. You figured it was all set up. It is in a way. When you go out those doors, you're on the air again. You've all seen it from the other end. You've watched it on TV for three years. When you go out, the table will be set up and waiting. And the scanner, it'll be watching you. And the chances are, no matter what you think you ought to do, you'll walk up to that table and you'll sign up. But according to the law that set up the academy, all we can do here is give you an education. We can't force you to use it in any special way. So you get a couple of hours between graduation and induction to change your minds. You get more than that. You get this 20 minutes now. Not because the law requires it, but because Alex Hader, whatever you may have thought of me for the last five years, is a human being as well as a brigadier general. You men are in the fourth graduating class of the academy. I've made this speech, or one like it, to each of the three classes that went before you, and I'll make one like it every year as long as I'm in command here. I want to tell you some of the facts of life they left out of the academy curriculum. And remember, in the back there, you're only going to hear this once, so you better listen while you can. The murmuring in the back rows stopped. Hater hesitated. You know, I told you this is the fourth time I've given this speech. And the toughest part of it is that I never get bored with it. Because every year, I've got a new story to tell. This year, it's about a man you all know, or at least you know of. His name is William Adamson, and in case you've forgotten, I see you haven't, he said brusquely. All right, when you're ready, I'll go on. Again, the noise subsided. Bill's served two months of his sentence so far. His jail sentence, I mean. He's got nine years and ten months of it left to go, and it's only that short because he's Bill Adamson after all. But I, I don't think it matters much to Bill. He's served 11 years of a different kind of sentence already, and this one is a life term. You probably remember how high and righteous the TV commentators got during the trial. They all thought it was shocking for a hero of the spaceways to fall so low. They said it was a bad example to all the kids who worshipped Bill Adamson. Well, it was. It was a bad example, and maybe some of you men can profit by it. But it wasn't shocking. At least, not to anyone who's been in the service more than a couple years. And I don't mean to say for a minute that I'm condoning drug peddling or even drug taking. I'm not building up the sentimental whitewash of good old Bill. But I wasn't shocked when it happened. I wasn't surprised, and neither was any other senior serviceman. Most of the others who went sour haven't been anywhere near as spectacular as Bill. But a lot of them have gone the same way before. It didn't have to be dope. Liquor, women, the big rackets, the little ones. Alright, that's enough build-up. I'm gonna tell you some things about Bill that were never in the papers or on TV either. And probably won't be. Not for a long time, anyhow. I can tell it now, because it was just this last year. 
a few weeks, that's all, before they raided Bill's place and caught him with the goods, that we licked the problem. If any of you here go out and shoot your mouths off, it won't matter to the government anymore. Only to Bill. As an old friend of his, I'm asking you not to repeat what I tell you. But there's no law against it. Now. Again, he hesitated. Where do you start with a story like that? He'd been stalling and the men out there knew it as well as he did. All right. Start at the beginning. Stall a little more. But just tell it straight, though. Bill Adamson, he said pedantically, as if he were delivering a classroom lecture on service history, was not really the first man to go to the moon. He was the first man to land a rocket on the moon and take off again. He was the first man to take a ship designed for X-12 fuel outside Earth's atmosphere. The funny thing is, Bill was no hero. He didn't even want to make that trip. He was a volunteer, sure. Everybody in the service is a volunteer. And no serviceman ever has to take on an assignment of special danger unless he volunteers. You'll find out all about that the day some bright-eyed colonel full of great ideas asks you coyly whether, in view of your exceptional qualifications for the job, you would like to volunteer for a given mission. I speak with authority because I was the colonel who put it to Adamson. They were silent in the back row now. The chief was talking. Whatever this was all about, it was coming out now. The thing for you men to remember right now, and later on if you do sign up, is that any time at all, you have a perfect right to say no thanks and go on about your business. Believe me, nobody who's been in a while will think less of you for it. As a matter of fact, that's what Bill did. He said no when I asked him. But I wouldn't listen then. We needed him. I put on all the pressure I thought I ought to, and I told him to take 24 hours and think it over. He said the answer was still no and would be in 24 hours. I told him to come back and say it again. I knew a little bit more about Bill just then than he did himself. He had a girl. I'd met her, and I knew the type. She was a bit player on TV at the time, smart, ambitious, loaded with looks, and enough talent to get along. Quite a dish, but not what you'd call an understanding type. She was crazy about spacemen. Yeah, I know, you still get plenty of it. But think back 11, 12 years, there weren't many of us who had licenses in those days. The service was new, the academy wasn't even open yet, and here was Bill Adamson, just a kid, if you'll pardon me saying so, no older than any of you, and he'd been offered a chance to be the first man to land on the moon and have a look around. Naturally, he told his girl about it. Naturally, he figured she'd be glad he turned it down. She loved him, it says here, so she wouldn't want him to take a risk like that. New fuel, new ship, untried out of the atmosphere... Hell, he didn't know if the setup would hold together halfway there. First, she thought he was kidding when he said he was going to turn it down. Then she began to realize he meant it, and she argued with him. He just kept patiently explaining that he liked living, especially with her in his life. So, she threatened him and bribed him. He owed it to his country, she said. He owed it to mankind to take the trip. If he was too much of a coward to do his duty, he wasn't the man for her. That was the threat. On the other hand, she pointed out, if he went, why, 
they could get married right away. They'd have a few weeks together, whatever happened. Up till then, you see, Bill had been begging her to get married, and she'd been holding off. Bill admitted to me later when he told me all this, that he had a sneaking notion that he had overtalked the dangers, that maybe she was so sure he wouldn't live through it, that she was willing to marry him just because it wouldn't last long. But of course, he knew that was an unworthy thought. She had such high ideals of devotion to mankind, she was willing to sacrifice her own principles as well as Bill's life. Anyhow, he pulled all his unworthy suspicions out of his mind and came back and told me the next day that he'd go. They got married on special license the same day. Bill got three weeks leave and the time of his life. The two of them were together all the time at one big blowout after another. The world couldn't do enough Bill Adamson. The happy days lasted right up to takeoff. He blasted off in a blaze of glory and he made it all right. He spent two days on the moon all by his lonesome taking pictures and looking around, filling little jars and bottles with the samples of this and that and making all the tests the science service boys wanted. Then he took off again and no trouble at all, he got back all in one piece, hungry, thirsty, a little cramped in the muscles and otherwise feeling fine. Maybe some of you remember the big welcome home he got. You're all old enough to remember. Hader looked around the big, dim room and found nods and smiles answering him. It had been one bang-up celebration, the kind of thing no kid with his heart set on the spaceways was likely to forget. You remember Bill went on a world tour and he was on television half the time, one show or another. A lot of the time she was with him, his wife I mean. You may not have noticed her at the time, but you would have if you were a few years older. I did. Anyhow, all that happened or began to happen about five days after he got back. Before they let loose any kind of welcoming, the medics went over that boy with a fine-tooth comb. They weren't taking any chances on new bugs for Bill's sake, or new sensitivities either. They made all kinds of tests on him, took samples of everything he had, and even after they let him loose, they kept on running tests. It was almost as if they had their minds made up not to stop till they got some bad news. Well, they got it. He paused, and in the silence in the room was a waiting, breathing thing. After they got it, he said tiredly. They checked and double-checked. They made absolutely sure before they told him anything at all. When they got around to telling him, there was no doubt whatsoever. He had to believe it. He had to believe it, and he had to tell his girl, his wife, about it. She said she didn't care. It was the truth, too. She was glad, really, because it meant she wouldn't have to worry about being pregnant. She could concentrate on her career. He walked out. Bill was a pretty normal, average kind of guy. He wanted a wife and kids and a home. He'd always figured on having that after he got out of the service. Now he was out and a hero, and he had lots of dough. But he could never marry the kind of wife he wanted, because he could never have any kids. Sure, I know, lots of people can't have kids. They get married anyhow, they adopt kids, they find a way around it. But Bill couldn't do that. 
he might have found the right kind of girl. Only if he did, he'd have to level with her before anything got serious. And he couldn't. He was a blooming hero. Even if he hated it and never wanted to be one. And the government wanted good publicity for the service, not bad. They were just building it up. And they were opening up the academy. They made it pretty clear to him just how a little word of mouth gossip about a case like this could wreck the whole project. Things like that get around fast. He never did talk. And I guess he saw to it that the girl kept quiet too because she never peeped. It doesn't matter now. They finally licked it. Just last year. Licked it for good, I mean. That's when they dropped the double armor and dome protection at Moonbase. You can go out there now in standard space gear and walk around just like Bill did and still come home and have kids. They were getting restless and his time was almost up. He couldn't talk for more than 20 minutes. All right, he said quietly. That's my story for this year. But you want to remember, it's just the one for this year. I have my pick of new stories every June. The service is pretty darn good when you come right down to it, though. Efficient. It can keep a secret like Bill's for 11 years, and it can make sure everybody who comes after a guy like Bill is protected like they did on the moon. But the one thing they can't do is see what kind of trouble is coming up ahead. We've licked a lot of problems so far, but just a few compared to what's coming up. One of you men may be the first to set foot on Jupiter, and frankly, his voice was getting fainter. He paused and said as loudly as he could, I don't wish it on any of you. They were fiddling with their jackets and straightening their ties. He had to wind up anyway. All right, that's about it. But when you go out that door to the big table and to the TV scanners that'll tell the whole world if you don't sign up, remember this. Whatever trouble you run into, you can get to be a hero like Bill, provided you look okay when you come home. But whatever trouble you come home with, you can't get any sympathy for it. And if you come back with your bones busted or a hole in your head, the chances are they'll just decide you're not fit for public display. The service has to come first. All right, that's all. He said very faintly, but they heard him. They were pushing through the door already, 147 of them in new fitted grays with stripes on their sleeves, every last one of them fighting to be first online at the table. And I hope none of you turn out to be heroes, Alex Hader said sadly. But none of them heard. Not even the ones who were still in the room. He'd been carried away when he started to talk about Bill. He'd used up extra words and extra minutes. His voice wasn't working anymore. Alex Hader was one of the lucky ones. There were four of them on the Venus expedition, and all they lost was the use of their natural built-in talking equipment. But a problem like that was nothing to the Space Service medics. Brigadier General Hader could manage all right. All he needed was a new charge for his batteries. This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr, 
The music in today's episode was provided by Epidemic Music. And the clip we played at the beginning was Space Pioneers from Universal International Newsreels, 1952. If you like Pulp, check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology, where we present cinematically produced full cast audio drama adaptations of stories from some of the greatest writers in science fiction and horror. Here on Pulp, we release a new episode every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice, and if you can, leave us a five-star rating or review today. You can also follow the show on Twitter at PulpThePodcast, or reach out to me directly via email at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening. <laughs>